Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, March 1st, 2020. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On January 2nd, 2017, Jody and I loaded up uh, two of our family vehicles and had all kinds of uh, family members in there. My dad, my two brothers, Jody's parents, assorted nieces and nephews, our two uh, young adult children, and we headed down to Pasadena to experience, for the first time ever, the Rose Parade. And we got, you know, if you go from here, you got to get up at like Oh, dark 30 in order to get down there. We had parking available at First United Methodist Church in Pasadena, but they closed their parking lot at 6 a.m., so you had to be in there by 6 o'clock, you know, for the 8 o'clock parade. It was quite harrowing to get in there and to figure out where we're supposed to go, but we made it. And, and we sat down on the reserved seats on street level and waited for the parade to start. These are our children, Ezra and Emily. Uh, and let me say up front, we were not disappointed. Oh my goodness, we saw equestrian teams, we saw horse-drawn carriages, we saw military bands, we saw high school bands, we saw Nittany Lion and Trojan bands. (laughs) Dathan's an alumnus of uh, USC, by the way, USC uh, pulled out a come-from-behind 52-49 to victory that year at the Rose Bowl. We saw dignitaries. Uh, This is Janet Evans of Olympic swimming fame. Uh, She was one of the grand marshals uh, there with her family. And of course, we saw floats, right? What's the rose parade without floats? Amazing, vibrant, colorful floats with flowers aplenty, which is their tradition at the rose parade. And even Jesus made an appearance. Like who knew we were going to see him at at the rose parade? Uh, my wife, Jody, uh, who enjoys parades, usually from the confines of our living room, uh, remarked on the way home, that was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Emphasis on the word once, she said. <laughs> and uh, I'm guessing if a few of you have made that trek down, you know exactly what she's talking about. Well, this is the opening Sunday in the Christian season known as Lent. And in a few moments, we will get at another parade-like uh, procession, but First, a little uh, refresher on what the season of Lent is. Lent is uh, six weeks leading up to Holy Week and Easter. It's a time that Christians over the centuries have intentionally focused on their spiritual walk with Jesus, on reflecting the ultimate sacrifice of of love that that Christ made for us. It's an opportunity for us then to to do things that help us draw closer. In some traditions, they have uh, the practice of giving something up. Right? Knowing that if, if Christ made the biggest sacrifice of giving up his life, we could make some small sacrifices, giving up a, something that we love uh, during this season as a reminder of the sacrifice Jesus made. Some folks like to, instead of give something up, take something on uh, and, and start a new spiritual discipline or some kind of practice uh, during the season as well. We even have a Lenten uh, devotion by Henry Nowen that we'd love to give you on the way out. Uh, you can take that and use it for your own use or for your family. 
Um, for me personally, I've decided to keep a gratitude journal uh, during the 40 days of Lent, and so I set a reminder on my phone, and every day at 1 o'clock, it goes off, and I take out my a new journal that I have, and I write three things uh, that I'm grateful for that day, and it'll be interesting to see over the course of 40 days uh, the, the variety of uh, items and, and relationships and experiences that I can be grateful for. Well, the sermon series that I'm going to be preaching during Lent is called The End. And we'll be journeying with Jesus through the last week of his life on earth. And usually we try to cram uh, Holy Week and uh, into Palm Sunday and Monday Thursday and Good Friday. All of that we try to do it like in just that one week. Uh, but this time we're going to be taking it one week at a time. Each week will be another day in the last week of Jesus's life. And we're going to be journeying through the Gospel of Mark together. Author Megan McKenna notes that the passion, according to Mark, is the shortest, bluntest, and in some ways, she says, the most brutal of the passion accounts. Most contemporary biblical scholars believe that Mark was probably the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was the first one to be written. In fact, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, owe a lot to, or Matthew, Luke, and John owe a lot to Mark's Gospel, that they uh, think that they copied some of that and, and added to, and, and, and that they all would have at least known of Mark's Gospel. Well, I've used over a dozen books this week and, and commentaries and preparing uh, for this series. And one of them, The Last Week, by Marcus J. Borg and John Dominic Crossan, made a statement about their book that I think applies to the entire sermon series that I'll be preaching. They wrote this. The goal of this book, and, and I should add the goal of my sermon series, is to retell a story that everyone thinks they know too well and most do not seem to really know at all. I think you'll be uh, encouraged, inspired, and challenged by how we go in depth day by day during the last week of Jesus' life. I'm so excited uh, to, to be leading you on this journey together, and we're going to get started with Jesus and his disciples on the move. Mark 11, verse 1. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. So in Aramaic, Bethphage means house of figs. Uh, scholars are uncertain as to where that city actually is now. They, they don't have a contemporary location of where Bethphage is. Bethany in Aramaic means house of dates or house of the poor. And it was located less than two miles east of Jerusalem on the southeast slopes of the Mount of Olives. Here's what the road to Jerusalem would have looked like in Jesus' day, as seen from Bethany, looking ahead to the holy city. Roughly half of uh, the first half of Mark's gospel sees Jesus in the northern part of Israel known as Galilee. This is where Jesus was born and raised, where he called his disciples, where he taught and performed miracles. The message wasn't about himself, it was about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand and what it means to follow, as Jesus said, on the way. Most of Jesus' activity in Mark happens in and around small towns up in the northern part of Israel. The second half of Mark uh, centers around Jerusalem. In fact, six of Mark's 16 chapters uh, are set in Jerusalem. That's 40% of the gospel. Jerusalem was located in the southern region of Judea. It was the center of Jewish power and commerce. 
It was their historic identity and the core of their religious meaning. Jerusalem became the capital of the ancient Israel in time of King David, about 1000 BCE or before the Christian era. Borg and Crossan lay out the foundations as to why the city was so important to the Jews. David was seen as a just and righteous king. He became associated with goodness, power, protection, and justice. The biblical writers say he was the apple of God's eye, even seen by some as God's son. And so revered was David that when the later prophets spoke about the coming of Messiah, they said the Messiah would also be a son of David. That it would come from David's lineage, one that would be as great as David was, even greater. This new David would rule a restored kingdom from Jerusalem. So the city of Jerusalem was associated with Israel's future hope of glory. A future that involved justice and peace, even more so that it involved power. And that's really important for us to remember as we move through not only uh, this message, but this entire series. So David's son Solomon built the temple around the 900s BCE. It became the center of the Jewish world. And and even though we know that God is everywhere, the ancient Hebrews believed that God's throne was actually there in the temple. Therefore, to come to the temple was to come and be in the presence of God Almighty. It was also a place where God's forgiveness was dispensed through sacrifices made uh, on behalf of the priests. Well, over time, Jerusalem became, uh, came to be ruled by foreign powers. The high priests and the temple authorities became the de facto rulers of the Jewish people per their uh, imperial overlords. And this continued all the way down until the 2nd century BCE, when the Ju- a Jewish revolt led by the Maccabees earned their independence for about 100 years, until 64 BCE, when the superpower Roman Empire took over the city, and after uh, abolishing the, the, the Jewish monarchy, Rome initially ruled through the high priest, through the temple, and through the local aristocracy. Rome seemed to trust the wealthy families of Jerusalem, but uh, in the decades after Rome took control of Israel, uh, those wealthy families started uh, arguing and fighting for power. In Israel and Jerusalem. So much so that Rome decided to appoint a king of the Jews, a man named Herod. Herod had a long reign, about 70 years, and eventually he became known as Herod the Great, but he was not popular amongst the people he ruled. In fact, some of the Jews referred to him as Herod the Monstrous. He spent outrageously, he was brutal in his oppression, and and near the end of his life, He was almost psychopathically paranoid. He he even had some of his own children killed because he thought they were trying to take over his rule. So when Herod died, revolts broke out all over Israel, all throughout the kingdom. And it was so serious that Rome sent in legions of soldiers to quell the uprising. And when they retook the city back, they crucified 2,000 inhabitants of Jerusalem just to show the people who's boss. From then on, Rome kept a perpetual watch over the city of Jerusalem, especially around the temple. And when the chief priests and temple authorities, they had to walk that fine line between leading the people, but also making sure that the nation stayed in good relationship with Rome so they didn't come in and brutalize them again. So, along comes Jesus and his disciples approaching this iconic city in what would be the last week of his life on earth. 
Mark adds the additional zinger mentioning the Mount of Olives. Now, not only was it geographically close to the temple, but it was also referenced in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, chapter 14, which said the Lord would appear there on the Mount of Olives at that very location and begin to usher in Israel's messianic future. Verse 2. Near the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village ahead of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it. And if anyone asks you, what are you do? why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here immediately. Most of the time in the Gospels, Jesus is recorded as walking wherever he needs to go. But Jesus wanted to be sure that the people understood what was about to take place. And to get to that backstory, we also have to go back again to the book of Zechariah, chapter 9. Verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah goes on to say that this new king uh, will, will banish war from all of the land. So there'll be no more chariots, no more war horses, no more cavalry and bows. No, this will be a king of peace who will come to usher in this new age in Israel. So Jesus asks two of his disciples to get the aforementioned cult in a rather curious way, isn't it? Right? I mean, scholars debate whether or not Jesus had already talked with the owner ahead of time and prearranged that uh, when the time has come, I'll send a couple of my guys ahead, and if you'll just let us borrow the colt, that'll be great. Or uh, was this one of those occasions where Jesus just knew everything, and he knew that there would be a colt there, and so go ahead and, and, and let the people know, and they know me, and so they'll give it to me? Or could there be a third option? For those listening at home, I just showed the clip from Star Wars Episode Four, when Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker were heading into Mos Eisley spaceport, and Obi-Wan Kenobi did his Jedi mind thing saying, these aren't the droids you're looking for. So could it be Jesus was the first Jedi Master? <laughs> Give me the colt. You'll let me have the colt. I promise to bring it back. I, I don't know. Some have commented that the phrase, a cult which has never been ridden, is an indication that the animal is suitable for a sacred task, that it hadn't been used for ordinary means, so it could be set apart for something special. It was a designation that was made in the Jewish scriptures in the the Torah. So the disciples did as Jesus instructed. They went to the village, they found the colt, they started to bring it back to Jesus, and of course the owners are saying, hey, 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 what are you doing? Why are you taking that colt? Verse 6. They told the owners what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat in it. And so with this makeshift throne, Jesus begins his entry into Jerusalem. Ken Geyer, in his book, Moments with the Savior, comments that Jesus was extremely intentional about how he entered the city. It was a very public act. That would force the religious establishment to make a decision about him. If you you read through the Gospel of Mark, you find that all throughout the religious leaders are just butting heads with Jesus left and right. They're looking for ways to trip him up, embarrass him, or discredit him. But now, no more meeting behind closed doors for them. No more plotting in private. They would have to come out in the open. They would have to confess him or curse him, crown him or kill him. 
And so Jesus comes. Verse 8. Many people spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went on ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. I don't think I've mentioned yet why it was that Jesus and others are coming to Jerusalem at this time. It was the festival of Passover, one of the three major holy days in the Jewish calendar, that time of the year when Jews would remember God's historical deliverance that led them out of captivity in Egypt so long ago and eventually into the promised land. Jewish pilgrims and tourists would flock from all over the world to Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands of them. Borg and Crossan note that although population estimates for the ancient Near East cities are hard to know with certainty, they they think Jerusalem probably had about 40,000 people in and around uh, Jesus' day. But during Passover, that could swell easily to 200,000 or more. And you know who else? came to Jerusalem at Passover, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the region, and his soldiers. The Roman governor would would have had to have been present, not because he uh, had any religious devotion during this time, but in order to make sure that the peace was kept at all costs. Pilate would have entered Jerusalem from the west at the head of a column of imperial cavalry and soldiers. Borg and Crossan imagine the scene. They say, horses, troops, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, the golden medal shining in the sun. There was the marching of feet, the creaking of leather, the crinkling of bridles, the beating of drums, the swirling of dust. It would have been an amazing sight to behold, a procession beyond all processions. You see, Pilate represented the emperor who in Roman theology was seen as the son of God. It was said that Emperor Augustus, who reigned from 31 BCE to 14 CE, was the offspring of a human mother and the sun god Apollo as his father. Inscriptions to Augustus referred to him as the son of God, the Lord and Savior, who would bring peace on earth amongst his kingdom through the power of his mighty army. And then, uh, entering the city on the east side was this. What a contrast. In the west, power, glory, violence. In the east, an alternative vision. The humility of the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus' entire ministry was leading up to. How did the people react? They shout, Hosanna, which means help us or or, or save us. It was an expression of divine vindication, of victory and deliverance. And not only do they shout Hosanna, but also blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. I discovered this week that this is the phrase that the priest would say to worshipers when they came to the temple in Jerusalem. When they came to bring an offering, the priest would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was this generic blessing that was given to all, but that's not what's happening here. No, the people are using that blessing and connecting Jesus back to the great King David, to the coming of the Messiah. They're seeing Jesus as the one the prophets spoke about, the one who would usher in this new era and kingdom for all of the Hebrew people. 
which sounds like it's exactly who Jesus is, right? Not so fast. There's electricity in the air. Such hope and expectation. Could he be the one, the one to finally restore the kingdom that the prophets have foretold? A king who would save them from their oppressors and restore political freedom. They saw Jesus as the savior of Israel, which he was. But he was also so much more. They misunderstood just how big Jesus' calling was. Jesus came to save the entire world, not just the Hebrew people. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem on this Sunday with a heavy spirit. He's already told his followers three times what's going to take place. In fact, the most recent time occurred just the chapter before in Mark 10. Mark 10, beginning at verse 32. Jesus took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, that's a phrase he used for himself, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. So Jesus knows what is ahead. It's not victory and triumph. It's suffering, persecution, and death. And he still willingly enters the city, humbly riding on a donkey to give himself away in love. Two processions. One in the west, one in the east, one with military might, power, and authority, one with humility and grace, sacrifice, and love. Only one of them was engineered to bring about the kingdom of God. So that's what's at stake when Jesus starts the end. When he starts the end of his last week of life on earth. The question is, how are we going to respond? As we journey together with him over these six weeks in Lent, Borgen Crossan, near the end of his chapter, uh, on this first day of Jesus' last week, note that Marx makes it very clear what it means to follow Jesus. What does it mean to be a disciple in Mark's gospel? Well, following Jesus means following him on the way. Did you know that the earliest Christians weren't called Christians? They were called people of the way. I mean, that's what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, to be on the way. Second, the way always leads to Jerusalem. There's no avoiding that. And it's significant because Jerusalem is the place of confrontation with the authorities, both Jewish and Roman. And finally, in Jerusalem, for Jesus and for us as his followers, it will be the place of death and resurrection. The crowds this day who are shouting, Hosanna, they didn't quite understand this. And can we blame them? I mean, we're often the same way, aren't we? We want a Jesus that'll help us with all the problems that we're going through in our lives, our personal savior to make things right with us and our families and the ones we love, which of course is true, but Jesus is so much more than that. Jesus is the savior for the entire world and he comes to bring about the kingdom of God, not just to make our own little kingdoms secure. Justice and righteousness 
for all. And that's a thread we will find throughout this week that brings him into confrontation with so many. This is what this series will be all about as we take a close look at the end. And we'll be forced to see just what kind of Messiah Jesus actually came to be. Verse 11. Then Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So just where is this week heading, these six weeks, as we journey with this week? It will revolve around the temple. And Jesus has a lot to say about the temple. But for now, he's just getting his bearings. It's kind of late. He's looking around, surveying things, if you will. Tomorrow will be another day, and by tomorrow, I mean next Sunday for us. In the meantime, there's one final scripture passage I want to bring to you before we wrap things up. From the prophet Malachi, the very last book in the Old Testament, chapter 3, verse 1. See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed, he is coming, said the Lord of hosts. So here he is at his temple. It's the beginning of the end. What will happen next? I hope you'll be here next week to find out. And all God's people said, Amen.